Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today on the show, I had such a cool person, Brittany Kaiser. She was the whistleblower during the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal in 2018 and literally is one of the most foremost people Uh, She actually is a founder of the Own Your Data Foundation. There's no one else that understands data, privacy, that Brittany, she wanted to ban uh, uh, Facebook from allowing political advertising. She has an amazing, amazing documentary um, on Netflix that you should all check out that I need to watch. It's called The Great Hack. She also has a crazy book called Targeted, the Cambridge Analytica Whistleblowers Inside Story of How Big Data Trump and Facebook, Prog Democracy and How It Can Happen Again. And we talked about all these different things. So if you don't want to read the book, well, you should read the book, but listen to the show. It's better. Cheers. Thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you, Charlie. Good to see you. Yeah. Good to see you. How are you? Very, very well. Uh, just here broadcasting live from Crypto Castle Hollywood. <laughs> You're in Jeremy's Crypto Castle? Uh, well, it's actually mine and Jeremy's and Lauren Bissell's. Oh, so. I didn't know you were working with him on that. That's so cool. Tell him I said good morning. He's probably I, not awake yet. I will when he gets up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh-huh. so funny. Jeremy, uh, I, let him tell you this story. But the funny story with Jeremy Gardner was that, um, and I'm, I'm here to talk about you, but it's just a, a quick story. He, um, he came to my apartment and he was in college. He was like 17 or something or 18. And he was in college. It was like 2012. And he came to my apartment and it was 2013. And he's like, Charlie, uh, I'm in college. I'm sorry for stalking out your front door. Cause he was literally like downstairs at my birthday party. Um, <laughs> he's like, I'm sorry for stalking you out, but I, I, you're the only one in New York that I could talk to you about this Bitcoin thing. Um, um, I want to quit school. I want to get involved in Bitcoin. I have this idea for like a prediction market, which became mm-hmm. Augur. Um, he's like, should I do it? I says, no, like stay in school. Don't get involved. It's, it's a crazy industry right now. No one's making any money yet. Like don't. And he didn't listen to me and he quit school. He started Augur and he ended up being, you know, one of the most successful people in our industry. So like, it just goes to show you that I'm, I'm wrong most of the time. <laughs> I don't believe that to be true, but, um, I, I'm, I'm glad he didn't take that piece of advice. Yeah, not me too. Um, but you, 
I wanted to, to ask you, like, I'm always trying to think of my first question to ask someone, you know, and I'll, I'll introduce the guest and I'll do like an intro thing. But, you know, like my first question tends to be kind of like, like burning, not burning inside, but something that I want to know, um, mm-hmm. your insight. So I remember when 2018, when the whole, um, Cambridge Analytica, um, am I saying it right? Cambridge yeah. Analytica, when it all happened and it was a huge, 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 huge scandal and everyone knows, you know, basically almost every American's data, every Facebook user's data was uh, sold off. Uh, and I'll let you told, you know, tell, tell the whole situation. Um, I remember when, when reading about this, um, you know, in my lifetime, it's probably the most important, um, uh, you know, like exposure of data. And I was so desensitized to it when it happened. And that made me feel really guilty. And I know a lot of people felt the same way. Do you think, do you think that's still the case? Do you think that we are almost like, we almost like expect Alexa to be listening to everything and we expect, it's like our privacy is so lost now. We don't expect to have any privacy. Therefore, it's like, we just shrug. For those who are not listening to the video, I shrugged my shoulders. <laughs> well, I, I definitely think that you're right about that. We've had a certain sense of apathy for way too many years. Uh, When Edward Snowden came out in 2013, the whole world went in in outrage about how governments use our data, but they didn't pay attention to some of the other things that he was talking about, which is how companies are collecting and using our data. That seemed to kind of fall by the wayside and all of the heat came onto what the NSA was doing with the prison project, right? Yeah. So it it took something of of this epic proportion to bring back a momentum of people actually deciding to care about privacy in, in, I would say, in general day-to-day life. We come from an industry where, you know, people like you have been trying to solve for some of these problems, working with cryptography as a way to secure your digital assets since you started building anything, you know, this is something people like us believe in. And it, it was really uh, when the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal erupted that I was at this juxtaposition in my life where I had been working for Cambridge for quite a few years. A lot of red flags had started to be thrown up in, for me and I, I think for some of my colleagues about how data was being used and how fast and loose the data industry was. And I had already been interested in Bitcoin and blockchain for quite a long time and was uh, trying to transition fully into getting involved in the blockchain industry when the newspapers around the world started going yeah. crazy about this Facebook data set that wasn't deleted. And I'm on stage uh, at Restart Week down in Puerto Rico with yeah. quite a lot of our friends on stage talking about data ownership. I want to go back into the beginning. So you and I have had to uh, do the same godforsaken work in that having to explain to people the difference between anonymity and privacy. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the most difficult thing because a lot of people assume, yeah, I'm in Bitcoin. I want I think that transactions and data needs to be private. They conflate it with you think that data and transactions need to be anonymous. Do you run into that? Do you have to explain to people the difference? Well, yeah, I do. And, and I suppose these days it's um, more legislators than anyone else um, because I, I work with uh, legislators both in state governments and, and federal government here uh, writing, writing new laws around data protection. Even the, the past few weeks, we've been trying to uh, 
write laws about what data should and shouldn't be able to be collected uh, for coronavirus contact tracing apps. And I'm very, I was very pleased that the Israeli Supreme Court shot that down immediately and hopefully other countries too, because contact tracing is literally just a bucket full of letdowns. Yeah, I, I've pretty much felt the same throughout most of the projects that I've seen come out in countries around the world because they're not coming out with a set of data protection regulation. And so when we, when we write these laws and we're trying to explain to legislators the difference between really being able to guarantee anonymity or pseudonymity um, when collecting data and allowing that data to be used by other organizations that could probably trace it back to people's personally identifiable information with enough data sets together, uh, then, then we have concerns over how long is that data being collected for and held? Um, what else is it going to be used for? Who is it going to be shared with? And so when we're trying to think about on, on a technical level, the difference between uh, you know anonymity and real privacy, uh, for me, it's a question of what data sets are being collected, what's being matched, uh, who is it being used by, what is it being employed for, and can you guarantee privacy by saying that data sets are anonymous? Well, how do you, like, it's a balance. How do you, like, it's a very general question. I don't expect, like, the perfect answer, but how do you, like, balance and how do we expect, because uh, how do we expect that balance of privacy but also the need to, like, you know, prevent crimes and, and things like that. And that's, you know, that's what the issue is. You know, that's what we see um, as a huge issue uh, with legislators that just want to take the easier way out. And we see that time and time again with new bills and new laws. But like, what what is the solution that you would tell them? So um, I know it's crazy. Yeah, no, no, it's a very good question because I seem to straddle the worlds from, you know, uh, the radical privacy advocates that are, are saying, you know, um, privacy or nothing. We, we need to be able to make all data that we create at all times private and have the ability to completely opt out. And then I, I also stretch all the way to the kind of radical transparency movement, which is what I like to call it, which is that we should be able to share as much data as possible all of the time. We just need guaranteed data security and, you know, complex but, but transparent opt-ins so we can really say what we want our data to be used for or not. And if it's going to be monetized, can we monetize it for ourselves and get a dividend off of that monetization process? And it's so, always going to be monetized, though, because that's why data is collected. The reason data is collected is for monetizing it. I They're completely not doing agree. it for our personal benefit. I completely agree with you. So I, I feel like there's there's almost an ethical and moral question that is balancing these two sides, which is, you know, can you protect yourself if you give up uh, some data? Can we guarantee your privacy today? And I would say today we, we can't, but in the next few years, we're working towards being able to. Um, and if we are going to allow um, some of our data being collected, can we keep those things safe if we decide to, to share other data sets? And, um, you know, I, I am in deep discussions with people from Interpol and Europol and um, other other types of um, you know law enforcement organizations on 
uh, tracing cross-border data crimes? And what does what does it look like to be able to follow criminal activities or bad actors or prevent it um, on, on a technical level? And I really do think that I'm more on the side of, uh, because right now I know that you can't guarantee your privacy and that, you know, the the data industry infrastructure is built in a very kleptocratic way and all the devices we're using on a daily basis are collecting so much from us that we might as well start to secure our data rights in terms of ownership, monetization, if other people are holding And that's where blockchain comes in. That's where crypto comes in and that's where Bitcoin comes in. And you want to do it on the most secure chain. You want to make sure that uh, that things are done the right way. And I think that like medical technology will be such the, maybe like the first aspect of that or where we'll see this really play out um because that's the data that I, do you do you agree that that's the data that people still care the most about like if you were to ask me i would say my health data is the, is is where i feel like i want that private and that's what i use to explain to people the difference i says your your health data is not anonymous it's private it's you choose the people that get to see that data and that's how i explain to people the difference between privacy and anonymity Yeah, exactly. And I'd like to make it very clear that I believe we should all be sharing as much data as possible if we have that consensual opt-in infrastructure on the back end in the technology where we can say our data can definitely be used for this. And we're happy for that to happen. For instance, I'm very happy to share my medical data with researchers around the world that are trying to cure cancer and diabetes. Um, but I don't want to share my health data with uh, private companies that might uh, be selling insurance to me at a higher exactly because they have access to that. Right. Okay. So uh, you, over the last, you know, three years, you've become like a privacy expert in, in the world. You've become one of the most uh, well-known and, and, you know, uh, pioneers and advocates for privacy. Thank you for that. Um, doing God's work. Um, but a lot of time it doesn't jive with the career, right? It doesn't jive with making money. You have to like almost uh, go out there and, and, and do and, and hope that the money will follow. A lot of times it doesn't. Um, in, in Bitcoin, a lot of the people that are that's how I kind of explain the early Bitcoiners. We knew that this could potentially make us a lot of money down the road. It didn't, um, but uh, we almost have to like do and then and let it follow for the future. But what motivated you to do at that moment, at that moment when you had to make that important decision? And what important decision was that? Because some of the listeners be like, what? What, what, what is Charlie talking about? I do it on purpose, guys. Right. So I, I suppose I should start this one off with, um, you know, the, the principle that I have never been driven by money. <laughs> I spent nearly my entire life uh, working for free for causes I believed in, whether that be volunteering for political campaigns or working for NGOs or charities, usually human rights like Amnesty International, the United Nations, working there for free or nearly for free uh, because I wanted to make a positive social impact, um, which again, I found that camaraderie in the blockchain space. Uh, And so I made a decision to become a whistleblower (laughs) on March 23rd, 2018. Well, I guess I I had decided it a few days before I I told you earlier in this episode, I am in Puerto Rico at a week-long blockchain conference, basically Restart Week. And... um, 
I was so incredibly supported and motivated by the people around me that week talking about how we have the possibility for privacy in the future. We have the possibility to protect our data, to own our digital assets. I had been working for a couple months in Wyoming with Caitlin Long and a lot of the legislators there. Um, because in, in January, right after Satoshi Roundtable, yeah. uh, Brock Pierce introduced me to Caitlin Long and said, Caitlin is writing um, some blockchain legislation in the state of Wyoming. I was so excited to see the first laws ever that were not only positive for the blockchain industry, but that defined our digital assets as our intangible personal property and defined different asset classes uh, and how they should be managed and how they should be legislated and regulated for the first time. You know, when we were in a space where it was, uh, you know, pretty gray and we've seen a lot of our friends' companies be taken away from them just because the legislative and regulatory areas have been gray. I was just so excited about the potential to change technology forever by further defining what digital assets are and how they should be managed and how we do that in an ethical manner, how we can describe property rights to protect people's rights and actually make them legally enforceable. Um, I, I just got so excited. So there were a few months where I thought, hey, I'm definitely getting out of you know, the data collection and selling and modeling industry uh, where no one knows what we're doing. I want to make a change. And it seems like right now, most of the world is freaking out that there's this Facebook data set yeah. that Cambridge Analytica didn't delete. So what was Cambridge Analytica? Like what was, what was the company for? How did it have access to, to, to like Facebook uh, data? And, you know, what were you doing there? What was your, what was your job there? Right. So um, I was a director of business development. So I was, in charge most of the time of going and meeting with presidents, prime ministers, people who, who wanted to be as well, and helping them design a campaign. Um, I also did commercial work and, and social work there, but it was mainly meeting with clients uh, that knew that they were interested in um, using data to achieve their, their ends and means. It was a data analytics firm. So we had, uh, as far as we knew um, the, the largest database on Americans uh, in the world, but also... Uh, wow, can I borrow that? <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of people are trying to get their hands on it. Um, uh, it's, it's in the hands of the authorities, as you might imagine. Mm. And uh, so our, our data firm was collecting as much data as possible about people purchasing it, licensing it, doing market research and polling to accumulate a massive database that was used for... Um, advanced predictive modeling and uh, micro-targeting. So that means then being able to send a different message um, down to the individual. Yeah. Everybody in the U.S. or, um, you know, as close as you can get in other countries where you can't do um, direct one-to-one data matching. And this company was involved in a lot of high-profile elections around the world, um, including, uh, you know, the Brexit campaign referendum as well as uh, Donald Trump for president. It's, uh, it's not, I, I just, I just need, can't, I guess I can't understand when did we transition into a world that you could digitally buy an election um, to a point where it's so jokingly obvious 
that I met a political fixer at a restaurant here not long ago, a few months ago, and I live in a not a not a very corrupt state, you know, like as far as states go, like maybe middle of the spectrum. And I was like, it's like, hey man, like how much does it cost? You know, so a city run is by like a city council of like five people, so there's no mayor, basically the most powerful people in the city. It's like, how much does it cost to like buy an election to like have a a, a city councilman? He's like, only about fifty k. I was like, really? That's it? Could you, I can't believe it. So when did we transition to a world that you can just buy elections digitally, like using a company like that, be able to and do it in a way where it's just complete. Hey, I'm a candidate and I want to influence. I want to influence, uh, you know, potential voters as much as I can mm-hmm. with information to make to make myself look good. It's just it's just I guess it's an insane thing. Yeah, I, I there's no accountability because once the person becomes president, then no one cares what he said at the election, and then once you know a person doesn't become president, then they just go off into the wilderness. So it doesn't really matter. Well, I think probably one of the biggest problems um, with this is that uh, the president can say ten thousand things at the same time to yeah. different people, and it's not transparent. It's not trackable or traceable uh, what is being said to whom and why they've been targeted in that way. So a president no longer even has to have one stance on an issue, but it, it began with the best of intentions. Uh, I, I know because I was there um, in, in 2007 and 2008, um, the uh, Barack Obama for president campaign uh, that I joined very early on, we were building the first ever kind of data-driven and social media-driven political campaigning tools. No one had ever used social media for anything besides contacting their friends one-to-one. Uh, we had to, I mean, we really invented social media strategy. That yeah. Is this may be a stupid question, but yeah. do, you, do you, were people appalled because of, you know, it was a hack or it was a, a flaw in the system? Or were people appalled because... The, f- the mere existence and everything was working as intended, like that this was a business model of harvesting data and everything was, what were people more appalled about? I feel that most people were appalled because they didn't understand how much data has been collected about them, who holds that, how easy it is to obtain, whether you're American or not, have a company yeah. or not. Um, and and what that actually looks like. Uh, I think we're, we're not very data literate as a global population. Most people don't even know what data is. You can't yeah. see it, you can't touch it. So when you hear that your personally identifiable information and all of your activities, your behaviors, your lifestyle has been collected and bought and traded and sold to people like Cambridge Analytica, the, the Trump campaign, and that they use that data in an abusive way instead of in, in a, I would say. What defines abusive though? Like, can't they use the data in any way that they want? Well, you can to a point. Um, we do have uh, laws and regulations that uh, forbid slander and libel. Mm. You know, disinformation. Well, it depends what country you're in. You know, voter suppression is is illegal in most countries, uh, but still, the the Trump campaign managed to find ways to use people's data to undermine 
the laws and social contracts we already have. And, and that's really what got to me. Because yes, the Obama campaign used the same um, Facebook Friends API, which allowed them to take data from people um, non yeah. right? Uh, but it was used for positive campaigning only, no negative campaigning at all, um, which is completely the opposite of what the Trump campaign's strategy ended up being, which was mostly uh, negative, um, at least out of the super PAC and, and some of the campaign strategies. Yeah. Let's talk about um, the elections in 2020 for a second, you know, because um, we can talk, you know, just to give the listeners an understanding. You wrote an amazing memoir that I have to read called Targeted, the Cambridge Analytica Whistleblower's Inside Story of how big data, Trump and Facebook broke democracy and how it can happen again. There's also, and I'm saying it out in case I forget, there's also an amazing documentary uh, that I started to watch with my wife called The Great Hack. Um, we plan on finishing it. And so um, I like actually happy that I don't, that I haven't watched and read because um, it'll influence me. It's the same reason I don't listen to podcasts by my <laughs> friends who are the other podcasters in the space because you know, if we have similar guests or whatever. Um, so just so you know, if, if anyone's ever listening, no, we don't, we try not to listen to each other. Um, but so I, we could talk about it a lot and we will, but I, I want to talk about the future, you know, uh, elections 2020, what will that look like and how will it, what will political ads look like? You know, like what will the Twitter, the Twitter ads look like? What I don't watch TV, so I don't know what like TV ads. I don't even care about that. Do people still do TV ads? Is that a thing? <laughs> still spend a lot of money on TV ads, Why? especially politics. Why? Who spends money? I don't understand who watches TV like anymore, live TV. I guess older people do. Yeah, well, older people do. And they're the ones who vote. I, I've never even really owned my own television, like gone out and bought one and been like, I want to watch a yeah. TV. Live in plenty of homes with them, but I don't turn on the television. I never have. I've been on my computer since, you know, I was old enough to type. <laughs> so that's that, but that, how will that change because you just look at look at today i mean look at just just today with or yesterday with the tweet trump mm -hmm. made a tweet about i forget what it was about it was about um why am i forgetting he, he made a tweet about um uh something and then twitter basically put a thing and said yeah uh you know this this potentially you know like check your facts check your facts i forgot about what what he said specifically it doesn't matter um and then, but you never see, you never see Twitter basically tell users uh, about a sitting president, a sitting president's tweets may be like in, you know, non-factual. I can't believe that. Uh, is that, is that largely a, a change of a positive change that we're seeing from work like you did? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's nice to see some of the social media platforms finally taking this seriously. It's been a long road of uh, working with government investigators and public testimonies in Congress and British Parliament and European Parliament to finally get them to take this seriously. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take credit for it myself. There's many other people that have worked so hard for this. For a long time, but it has not been easy. Uh, you know, it was only this past October, I believe, that Mark Zuckerberg stood in Georgetown University and yeah. told everybody that uh, he was trying to protect people's right to free speech and therefore didn't want to censor politicians. 
well, you know what? Um, the right to free speech is not an unchecked right. I do not have the right to use my speech to incite violence on you or slander. Or yeah, you can't say bomb in a movie theater. Um, so when politicians are not held to the same uh, standards as you and I, you know, they have community standards that um, that we have to abide by. But now Donald Trump doesn't have to. What? Where where are they getting that from? That all, all of a sudden everybody is um, that everybody is the most discerning, most digitally literate citizen. Yeah, of course. Tell the difference between fake news and disinformation, and judge a politician ourselves. You know what? Most people can't, to be honest. You know, I, 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 I my own mother sends me fake news about me. You know, <laughs> we have a, a rule that my mother in law knows that she can't repeat any news that she got from a pop up on her phone. Because it's all fake. Like, it's just not even, it's not that it's fake. It's just completely manipulated. So it's not like the word fake news is not the right term, but it's clickbait news. It's also like out of context news. And it's data that's, that's what, what these companies do now, the media does is they intentionally make something extremely complicated where they can manipulate you into thinking what you want, but they do it in a way that doesn't make you feel stupid. Right. That's, and that is a good copywriter. In fact, <laughs> I got someone wrote copy the other day and I emailed him. I was like, I need to hire you. Who writes your copy? It's, I got scared. I almost bought your product, but I was a little bit greedy. I was like, I want to make some money. Like it was a perfect product. Right. Who writes your copy? I need him for the show. <laughs> You know, and that's that's the power of targeted advertising. <laughs> it really is because every the way that you felt in that moment is the way that um, most people feel if you actually have a properly well targeted ad, and that means it's coming from an ad agency or organization that has access to enough of your data to know exactly what you want to see, what you want to hear, what you want to yeah. feel uh, to engage with that. You know ad or video or whatever happens to be. I want to ask you a question, but I have to be very careful not to show my bias of the answer. Um, where are you located, by the way, right now? Los Angeles. Okay, so you're in California, and mm-hmm. I'm in Florida. And for the purpose of this question, I'm going to use like, you know, California and Florida as like the examples of, of COVID and what's been going on with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, and it comes back to data and information. It's two very different worlds. What's happening in Florida? I look out my window, and it's what's happening in California with you? I mean, here, um, uh, the, the 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 there was never there was never a lockdown. There was no there was a safer at home order, but it was largely um, voluntary. Where the the governor told the counties and the cities, "You guys run yourselves. You guys make your own decisions. When you need my help, let me know." And what that did was, is, is it, it was weird because some counties would have curfews while you could drive into another county and there's no curfew. It was like every city was different. But it also allowed like my city to do something like, for example, say, okay, um, all the restaurants are closed. How about this? They, can, they immediately issued a permit to allow temporary sidewalk, you know, all the tables that you can have inside, you can now have outside. And that mm-hmm. kept restaurants open, only outdoor seating. Right. And then you have a different world like in, in, in uh, New York, in California. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends that are in these places are very uh, disheartened because they see that the people in these places have become sheep in that they are 
just completely taking the words of the government for what they are and not questioning, especially when it comes to like what's been going on with COVID-19. Do you see that? Do you, do you see this like, this like almost like communism in a way that's happening in like some of these states? Uh, careful, Charlie, your bias is showing. I know it, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, what I really feel um, was that, you know, by the recommendations of the world's top medical experts, um, what we needed to do was take take a number of precautions to make sure that we could give um, governments and hospitals and, and, and people enough time to create capacity for us to handle um, the amount of people that would eventually um, yes. get and have complications. And so that's that's fine. And that was the balance. That was the accurate balance. Like that was, and that is the most important to prevent us from getting overwhelmed. But that's, yeah. so then where was the right to right? And where was the left to left? Like help us find like the perfect balance, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it just out of, out of what I have personally seen that, you know, you have to, you, you really have to think about how can how can you change people's behaviors so quickly in order to in order to actually have the effect that the medical experts are asking us to have or saying that we need um, to to save human life? Okay, well, uh, you have to get a bit draconian in, in the beginning, I suppose, but for how long? You know, we're we're now in a situation in California where everything has been closed for months. Yeah. Um, I think it's actually today that uh, some uh, retail shops are allowed to reopen, um, and but they've been shut for a couple of months. And, and that just yeah. means the amount of small and medium-sized businesses that have had to close, um, the amount of individuals that have been affected that can't provide for their families is... It is overwhelming. And I know that's taken a huge toll on people's mental health, their ability to provide. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. So I, I think uh, that once once government saw the curve flattening and yeah. the data showing that we had the ability to open up that, you know, that, that we should be doing that. Um, I, I don't think we can trap people inside any longer or stop people from running their businesses, yeah. uh, you know, events from taking place. Like, yes, let's keep our precautions. I know most restaurants. Yeah, I got my mask right here. Like, you know, like there's like a, a balance, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, go out, wear a mask, um, wash your hands, wear gloves if it, if it makes you feel more comfortable. Um, but like to, to not allow people to go Don't pick your nose in public is, um, it, it, I think it, it, it's gone too far at this point. So thank you for that because, because yeah. that is a very balanced approach. And I think that, yeah, right. I, I do get a little bit biased sometimes of my like huge anarcho capitalism, like <laughs> slash libertarianism, blah, blah, blah. You're in the crypto castle. So you hear about it all day. Right. Um, <laughs> can you, can you help me? And, and by me and the listeners, you know, um, on in the future, when we start to see political ads, how can we tell, like, who paid for these ads? How can we tell if it's false information? Are there any keywords that we can look out for? Um, how can we become better educated? 
like as 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 the voters because now I got my right to vote back and I'm excited. Right, absolutely, and uh, you know everyone should be exercising that right, even though it's probably going to be quite confusing this year um, what that looks like. <laughs> what do you think of mail-in ballots too? But that's another. That's what it, Trump was talking about. He said mail-in ballots were uh, were yeah. fraud or it's you know a scam or something. Which is which is crazy considering he also says that um, he doesn't encourage digital voting. So if he doesn't encourage paper ballots or, or digital voting, then he's encouraging, you know, apathy and voting. I know, people to go. Surprise, surprise on that front. Um, I, I think, you know, paper ballots, just like dollar bills, um, can give people coronavirus. So I think we should think about uh, voting on the blockchain instead because no one ever got coronavirus from Bitcoin, Charlie, did they? <laughs> no. the And voting on the blockchain has always been like the dream, especially because... A lot of places are willing to pilot it, and there are a lot of companies trying to do it. The biggest problem is how do you assign an identity to the blockchain? There are a lot of companies trying to develop that, and I really think that you're going to see that. You're going to see voting be on the blockchain. I guarantee it. It's going to be a huge thing. Yeah, um, I mean, we're, we're already on that path right now. Um, five different states have done pilot projects um, with, uh, I think most of them were, were with the platform Voters. Um, that was uh, that was very successful. Um, it was mostly for um, mostly for uh, military um, military absentee voting, but uh, the pilot projects were, were successful, and yeah, that is incredibly exciting. Um, and, and I really think that we're going to see the need for that, uh, given as I said, literally like sending paper around during a time where not the best idea wash their hands and wear gloves and not, you know, pass things to each other is not the right way to do it. It's not because it's a fraud or they don't work or whatever it was that um, our our criminally insane president said, but um, it's literally just thinking about people's health and safety right now and also success to actually receiving a ballot in your house, knowing how to fill it out, get it mailed back in in time. That's such a bigger process than being able to log in, verify your identity, and place a vote that cannot be manipulated, uh, right? Uh, that's that's, And then that you cannot be manipulated too. Like, and, and that's an issue because there still is, like, especially here in the South, you have a lot of voter intimidation. It still exists. Mm-hmm. especially in the places like swing states and the count, the swing counties like, dude, they have these elections down to the county. They mm-hmm. know with enough money, you can literally win any election, uh, especially on like a state or a state level, or you want to become like a judge or, and, and, and I'm a big fan of democracy. I'm a big fan of voting. I'm a big fan of our government, the way, it, the way it should work. Um, but I'm not a fan of, you know, the ability to, to, to unfairly uh, pretend. This is my. This is what I don't like. You ready? It's not, that, it's not even about the, the fact you combine election. I don't like, and and I don't, and, and it, I lose sleep over this sometimes. I don't like that you can have people parading around pretending to uh, be my spokesman when mm. they're not my spokesman. They're just someone who paid for that ability for that seat. You know, right. if you want to pay for a seat like in a House of Lords or whatever, so mm-hmm. be it. Great. Have a whole nother congressional chamber for rich people. Great. Like, do that. But don't sit here and pretend that you're speaking for me when you're not. 
that's it. Simple. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I totally get that. And I think that that's, that's where this like data conversation comes because it's not just money anymore that will buy you a seat. You know, Hillary Clinton paid $1.3 billion to lose and Donald Trump. I can't believe paid that. Right. 600 million. It's just someone outbid her. So no, no, he paid less than half. He spent less than half. Um, the technology was just better. Just technology More was data. better. What, so what's, what is Own Your Data? You've launched a, a whole project around this. Um, you have staff and, and you're traveling around the world and you're talking and you're working with legislators. Uh, tell me about that. So I started the Own Your Data Foundation in order to promote uh, access to digital literacy education globally. Uh, so there, there's a new concept called DQ, which is a digital intelligence quotient like IQ or EQ. And that has been developed over the past 10 years by a lot of the world's top think tanks and universities and ministries of uh, technology and innovation. And uh, this indicator set uh, is um, basically a curriculum for teaching people what their data rights are, cybersecurity protocols, um, how to have an uh, ethical relationship with technology, a healthy relationship, you know, cure your screen addictions. How can you have emotional intelligence on social media? How can you... What's have, emotional intelligence on social media? What is that? Um, you know, how to not um, not get incited by inflammatory content, how to have, be just not get trolled. you share, you know, like media literacy. How can you spot fake news and disinformation and not spread that to your friends and family? Uh, these are things that we were not taught in school um, until uh, last year. So I'm helping teach that in schools. And right now, not in schools, I suppose, yeah. but doing training for teachers and and professionals um, so that the teachers and parents can, can protect their kids online who for the first time are on devices all day and all night <laughs> when they used to have physical interaction in person. And now... The whole world is vulnerable. Kids and adults are are leading a fully digital life. So we are here to equip people with the tools to lead a successful and, and protected digital life now that that's all that we know. I didn't think that my work was going to be accelerated. Yeah. Pace, <laughs> the need for it. Um, but uh, that's great. And that's what we're doing with, with, the, um, with the foundation. Um, you might see the necklace I'm wearing. I love it. Oh, I like that. Um, What's on it? Uh, so um, the amazing Shannon Chiang made these, and uh, it, you sell them. It, 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 it's yeah, I sell them on ownyourdatafoundation.com, which is our online I'm shop. Go buy one. <laughs> yeah, own your data. We we have ones that are lockets that hold your UB key, so you can use them as a two factor authentication. Oh, cool! Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. I gotta make sure I buy whatever I buy before the listeners hear about this. <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, the original. You can buy is, early access to this show. No, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> the original of this is soldered onto um, a circuit board, so it's a mold made from a circuit board. Oh, and, that's so cool. Yeah. I love that. And I want to wear it around my neck, actually, because I don't have you a know, necklace, it's, it's part cool. of the movement for people to take their data rights seriously, to take yeah. their life seriously and realize, you know, some of the protections that you put in place for your physical life, you don't... I have my Bitcoin ring. <laughs> yeah. I have a private key on the back. This is an EOS ring gifted oh, to that's me cool. at B1 June. 
Launch. And then check this out. You got the Frank Mueller in crypto oh, watches with the Bitcoin. Life. I know. <laughs> I know. These are great though. I got a, I got a bunch of these to sell. Like They're we just started, I collaborated with them to make these. And, and so I just imported a bunch of them into the U S to sell. This is one of them I'm going to sell, try to try to sell uh, as well. But yeah, beautiful I think watches. I know more than a few people that are interested in that. So. Yeah, they're great. They're great. They're so cool. They're the coolest watches and they're Bitcoin wallet. They're, the private key is not on the wallet. That would be stupid on the watch itself. The private key is like on a metal uh, engraved card. It's actually an open dime. So they worked with open dime, Frank Mueller. So the private key comes on an open dime. And as you guys know, the open dime has to be broken in order for the private yeah. key to be seen. But this is cool. Like you could have friends just like send, but the watch itself is just gorgeous. And I mean, they're Frank Mueller watches. It's like just they're almost as good as Rolex. Like I asked for one for my bar mitzvah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. So what's, what's the next step for you? What's the next, uh, what are you looking forward to with the world opening up? Are you looking forward to traveling again? Are you looking forward to speaking on stages again? Yeah, I really am. I, I, I miss the conferences. You know, obviously, I don't miss needing to be on a plane nearly every day. Um, it, it's been nice to be um, more centrally located and have a little bit more time for myself when you uh, yeah. remove the time spent on logistics. <laughs> but um, I, I, I can't wait to be interacting in person with people that, you know, frankly, need to hear this message. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in Congress or in parliaments meeting with legislators and, and other influencers. And in what's that message that you want to get out to these? I mean, like, it, you're, what's your takeaway? Like, if you, if there's one message that you can make sure people have when when you make these give these talks, like that the impression, because that's really you could what you can expect, right? Just to leave an impression. Like, what's that impression that you want to leave? That data is the most valuable asset on earth. And somehow we as the producers uh, of the world's most valuable asset uh, don't get adequate value. You know, we are valuable as humans and the data that we produce every day has created a multi-trillion dollar industry. So what we have in front of us yes. is, is the opportunity for data to become the great equalizer. The what legislators need to realize is that our fathers and grandfathers produced things. And while we're still producing things... Data is what we're producing now. So treat data like a commodity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's why I'm an advocate for data ownership as a property, right? Yes. Uh, when, when we own our data as our property, then we have the ability to know who wants to use it. Um, you know, think of it like the Airbnb model. If someone wants to use your house, if someone wants access to your data in the future, you should know who they are, how long they want to use it for, what they're going to use it for. You agree on a price and get paid before you hand away the keys. Uh, so I, I really see that as the most practical way to assert our rights and using um, distributed ledger technology and um, you know advanced forms of encryption on the back end, we can guarantee, especially through smart contracting, uh, what our data is is used for. So we we do we're starting to have you know exponential technologies that can that can help us do this, and we're starting to have. The laws and regulation in place to say it's criminal not to do this and not yeah. to give people these rights and not to give them a data dividend um, when you're monetizing their personal information. And I completely that, agree. You know, that's that's what I see as the future. People need to be digitally literate in order to understand how to protect themselves. And that's why I work with, you know, the On Your Data Foundation. And that's why that's 
the most important thing I'm doing in the world right now. Um, but we, we need laws and regulations to catch up and we need technology to catch up. So I do sit on the board and advise many blockchain companies um, because I, I really believe that if we have education, digital literacy education, along with new laws and regulation, along with um, the development of ethical technologies, uh, then, then we're really going to be getting somewhere. I completely agree. I completely agree. And there's no better message and impression that we really can expect on anyone. And thank you for doing that. And thank you for, for continuing and for starting the Own Your Data Foundation and for making cool necklaces that I'm going to Absolutely. And, and stuff that I'm going to buy after we finish here. And um, uh, how can everyone follow you? Uh, so you can find me on um, Twitter at Own Your Data Now. Um, you can uh, on Facebook, um, on facebook.com slash Own Your Data. On LinkedIn, I'm uh, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Own Your Data. And uh, on Instagram at own.your.data. I love it. And your Own Your Data Foundation mm-hmm. is where people can shop for stuff because I'm on, I'm on yes, it right now. Yes, ownyourdatafoundation.com is Amazing. our online shop. And uh, to see more about the work that we do, ownyourdata.foundation has a lot of resources on there. And please Boom. feel free to write to me uh, as well. Um, you can write into us at Info at ownyourdata.foundation if you want to get involved, volunteer, partner, um, or, or just learn more about it or, you know, to do another interview with me like this to talk about these issues. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Charlie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offert. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power. 